This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Given that this is the second legal discussion to be published here, a bit of background is due. Earlier this year, it became clear that there was a need for a public forum where legal opinions about the space could be presented and tested. This started out as an experiment, but once we reached our stride, the community value became clear and we began recording our discussions. In today's discussion, we look at the legality of raising money through token launches, the potential risks involved, and approaches to improving the safety of these new bearer assets. Participants were Pip Ryan, Pamela Morgan, Alexandra Sims, Lisa Leikoltz, Hannah Glass, and myself. Following the discussion is an interview with Peter Van Valkenburg, recorded at DevCon 2, in which he applies the Howie test to the DAO. I'm Arthur Falls. For the purpose of this and all Ether Review episodes, it's important to understand that this show is not in any way affiliated with my employer, Consensus. To begin with, new to this particular discussion, Pip, would you mind introducing yourself and explaining a bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name is Pip Ryan. I've got a PhD in breach of trust, which is where my interest in blockchain begins. I teach at the University of Technology. I'm also a barrister. I've been at the bar for 15 years. And um, I've got a subject at UTS that we're about to roll out called Disruptive Technologies and the Law. And Pam. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Pamela Morgan. I'm an attorney, an educator, an entrepreneur. I've been working exclusively in Bitcoin and blockchain technology since early 2014. Aside from helping people in my law practice, I have a company called Cirque Key Solutions, and we focus on key consulting and management. We help organizations and individuals learn how to hold keys securely and learn how to keep the cryptocurrencies that they've earned or worked for. Fantastic. And uh, Alex, would you introduce yourself again as well? I'm an academic at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. I'm interested in blockchain, just everything blockchain, and I've only been doing this for just over a year, so I'm a newbie. <laughs> I fell down the rabbit hole, changed all my research, and at the moment my research is on the regulation of cryptocurrencies in New Zealand and Australia, and that's a project funded by the Law Foundation. Hi, I'm Lisa Leikholz. I'm studying my Master's in Law at the University of Otago in New Zealand. And I'm focusing on blockchain technologies and how we can create a favorable regulatory environment to promote adoption in business in New Zealand and hopefully abroad. And aside from that, I work for the Blockchain Association of New Zealand. Hi, everyone. My name's Hannah Glass. I am a solicitor at King & Wood Mallisons, which is an Asian-based law firm. Um, I'm actually in the Sydney office. And my practice focuses primarily on blockchain technology. Whilst it started kind of in the Bitcoin cryptocurrency phase, it's sort of expanded and take drawing upon my traditional roots as a sort of financial services and markets lawyer. That 
it's basically expanded to look at how those legal principles can be applied to blockchain technology, cryptocurrency, and also kind of going forward from there, what changes need to be made to the law to facilitate these changes in technology actually being workable in the real world. Well, that leads us right into today's discussion, which is this new fad of crowd sales, token launches, and what exactly the legality of these kind of activities are. So in terms of securities law, I think what we're dealing with here is something that's different depending on your jurisdiction, and it is different depending on the token itself. So I think we should probably frame the discussion around not just sort of what is a token launch, what is an ICO, but what is the thing that is being offered and who is it being offered to, as well as who is it being offered by? So when we're looking at a kind of traditional legal framework, we'll say, okay, well, we're offering shares, say, in an IPO. You're offering shares, which means you are offering an interest in a company to a certain group of people, let's say IPO, the public. And in order to do that, it needs to be issued by a certain person, the company. Now, there are pretty strict rules around what you do because of the nature of the person who's issuing it the people that you're assuming them to, and of course, the rules and regulations, as well as just the rights attaching to that share. If we're looking at an ICO example, it's not necessarily being issued by a company, but it might be. It's not necessarily being issued by an individual, but it could be. It's not necessarily a share. In some instances, again, it might be. It could be some other form of financial product. And then, of course, who are you issuing it to? That's the one thing that's slightly different. Whereas other financial products or securities that can be issued to only a certain type of person or people within certain categories. But here they're issued to everyone. It's not just who, it's also where, because that's all it sort of brings into account other legal principles as to, well, are you offering it to people in the States? Does US law apply? Are you offering it in Australia? Does Australian law apply? Basically what I'm saying here is there is no one size fits all. So when we're looking at ICOs or token launches, it really will depend on the framework of the token itself. Can I say something about classification of language here? Sure. Okay, mm. so that was really good, Hannah, and I really love the fact that you went through everything so clearly in relation to these questions that are going to give us problems, depending on mm. things like jurisdiction, who's issuing, who's not. I think one of the problems we've got with ICOs, and just to do some classification, I think the promise of why a person would actually take up the offer is really central to what is going on with the ICO. That when somebody is issuing any kind of share or interest, whether it's to a certain class of person or, or anyone, the way that we talk about securities is it's done so that the person who's investing, who's parting with their money to receive that product, that financial product, expects to participate in a profit-making venture for which they will receive profit. Exactly. And the other thing is when you are issued with something, you know what you're participating in. So yes. you know the company you're investing in, for instance. Yeah, and, and their activities. Exactly. You know what they're going to do. This isn't something of, we will probably create a company that, I don't know, mines gold at some stage in the future. It's, we have a company that mines gold. And that all goes into the disclosure. And you're 100% correct. We are dealing with a very different environment here than we would be doing in a traditional securities environment. 
Yeah. And then what makes ICOs really interesting is so often the language around the offer is the, the person, the appeal or the offer to, I guess it's like an invitation to treat. So a lawyer would probably call it an invitation to treat, but it's an advertisement that's put out suggesting that people may want to invest in this. The word invest is never used they get around it and the language of crowdfunding has become really popular. I know there's also crowd sale has become a popular term, but I think what is important is that a crowdfunding suggests the donation of money. Traditionally crowdfunding, which has been around since the internet has been something that we've thought of as a donation to somebody or a cause in need. Can I just jump in there about terminology? And this is a thing of dealing with different jurisdictions. In New Zealand, crowdfunding means something specific. And it oh, is okay. a, a process of investing into a company. And there are limits. So the compliance are not, is not as high. And so, for example, you can get up to raise up to $2 million in any 12-month period. So, yeah, even the terminology is different and you've got to be registered and everything, but the requirements are not as high as if you were issuing a normal security. So that's actually a really good point there. Um, yeah. Because what you're getting into there is sort of crowdfunding legislation and what we in Australia will term equity crowdfunding. So it's the similar principles of, as Pip was saying, your general investing in a project and giving people money so that you can get, say, a CD or a Pebble watch. But instead, what you get are shares. But again, it goes back to the previous concept of if it's crowdfunding and it's equity crowdfunding, you get equity. Mm. And you still need to know what you're getting equity in. And so it's the language matters. It certainly does. And you bring in when you're using a term like crowdfunding, you bring in that whole legislation. But it's not just the language that you use. It's also what you're offering what it is fundamentally because you can say oh you know it's an ico therefore it's a coin therefore the treatment of bitcoin comes in or oh no but it, we only talk about it as a token therefore it's property but if the rights that you're given look and act like a share it possibly is a share if however they look and act like a, some sort of token that just simply gives you a right to i don't know a piece of music well then it's property we've seen that each of these different icos is different they have different terms they are for so issued by a wide range of people. But just on Hannah's point, um, yes, there, there's a wide range. And Peter Van Valkenburg from Coin Center, the last conversation ended on a really strong point because what he was saying was quite a few of these ICOs are actually for building infrastructure. And so they're a way of actually financing the open source movement. And if you've got something like that, then they really should not be treated the same as if someone is trying to raise money for a venture, like a, more of a company. So in some ways, this is a, some of them are completely different beast that we haven't seen before. And that really does require protection, I think, that, and it shouldn't be shoehorned definitely into the normal profit. I mean, sure, maybe at the end of the day, they're trying to make a profit, but not how we would normally see it. The other bit of the worrying thing in New Zealand is under our legislation, a security can be anything that's deemed to be a security. <laughs> so, you know, we don't want everything all of a sudden. And also, this was Lisa, um, Arthur and I were at a blockchain, oh, and Pamela, at a blockchain conference last week. And people were saying, oh, please don't use ICO, please, because it's so similar to IPO. So immediately the language just needs to be changed. Um, well, interestingly, I I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add to that. I think that that's, part of the reason that people use the term. 
In other words, I think that they benefit from not a legal perspective, but from an everyday person who's participating in this ecosystem. They want the, the affiliation with an IPO. They are intentionally drawing those analogies, I think, because as you rightly said earlier, you know, these, these tokens can be used for pretty much anything. I think a really good case study for looking at ICOs and, and how uh, proliferating throughout the industry today is to look at the Ethereum presale. Yeah, so Ethereum in late 2014, actually in earlier 2014, um, they were toying with the idea of how to actually make this platform a reality. And they were looking at a lot of different funding mechanisms. And one of them was a token. And there was a lot of talk of a crowd sale of a token. And there was talk initially of, you know, buying into the Ethereum ecosystem with an equity token. Then that discussion changed rather abruptly. And the Ethereum Foundation was born in Zug, Switzerland. And it was uh, incorporated as a nonprofit. And how Ethereum initially raised its funds was it sold tokens of Ether as a pre-sale of software. So this has become not only a model for successful fundraising, but also a repeatable model. And then, you know, Ethereum has gotten a lot of buy-in from a lot of uh, large traditional industry players. And I, and I think it's great. And, you know, I, I participated in the Ethereum pre-sale and I really like the platform. So this isn't a negative uh, mention about it. It's just, this is the history for those of you who, who weren't here during that time. And so I think that's one of the reasons why now we're seeing so many ICOs. And I, for one, I don't know about any of you, but I get asked at least a few times a month to be a consultant on a new ICO project. They are just flooding my inbox. When I go to conferences, I'm asked, uh, crowds of people are saying, hey, I'm working on this ICO project. I'm working on this project and we plan to ICO in the next month, in the next two months, in the next three months. So I think that this is, is the up and coming. And I think that, you know, from a legal perspective, how we started this discussion was, was right on. I think it was you, Hannah, that said, really, it depends on how these tokens are, are being marketed and how people how people view what their role will be and what they can do with these tokens. I think as long as we're talking about the history, it's worth pointing out that really, I believe the first big token launch, I guess, if we're going to use extremely neutral language, uh, was <laughs> MasterCoin. And then notable ones after that were BitShares and Counterparty had Proof of Burn, which was amazing because they destroyed all the funds that were contributed. That was a Bitcoin burn, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So it's like, and then there were early disasters as well, like Swarm, the, the original Swarm. Yeah. Are, are you familiar with smithandcrown.com? Have any of you been to their website? Yes, I if, have. If it's, not, it's interesting. It's, it's amazing seeing the proliferation of these ICOs, but also you look at them and I guess maybe this is me being the lawyer, but you look at it and go, what on earth are you actually offering people? And you can't necessarily work yeah. out. Some of them are actually really interesting, but others you're like, I don't get it. Okay, so to add on to that, I, I love Twitter for a number of reasons, but um, my favorite ICO is ponzico.win. And uh, I just tweeted I just, I just about it's a Ponzi ICO. If you haven't taken a look at it, just for comedic genius. Basically, it is all the things that we as lawyers hate about ICOs. 
put together in a really, really funny way. The white paper is fantastic. And uh, I think that this thing has actually raised a significant amount of money. <laughs> There's another way out there. I think it's it's the ICO.com or something like that. And similarly, they, they've got the ICE, typical ICO website, which is lists kind of fraudulent economics and not quite blockchain, but blockchain inspired with centralization um, listed as the features. So it's, I think we're getting oh, to the stage boy. where people realize that some things aren't quite as basically if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that one thing we haven't touched on yet is how hungry the market is and how one of the, one of the plus sides of, of this is that, you know, traditionally, at least in the U.S., you have to be an accredited investor in order to invest in most of the, the new and up-and-coming companies. And this kind of blows the lid off of that in a global way. Although, of course, you know, the barrier to entry here instead of being an accredited investor is that you need to uh, understand how to acquire either Bitcoin or Ether or some other cryptocurrency, right? Because typically they don't accept anything else. But, but so there's definitely that barrier to entry, but it's a, a technology barrier to entry and self-imposed versus a regulatory barrier to entry that, that is that for accredited investors. And I think it's interesting to kind of explore the why those barriers are there. We touched on this a bit earlier, but the idea of, you know, the public policy, the public purpose of protecting people. And I think that maybe, you know, in light of, of the internet and the proliferation of, of information and the availability of information, I think maybe these sorts of barriers could be revised. And I think this, this provides a good opportunity to do that. Yeah, no, I think that's actually a really good point that you raise is that fundamentally this shows there is a lack of capital in the market and people need capital to be able to build platforms and programs and this is a way of accessing that. I do like your point actually that there is a certain barrier to entry and that you need to have acquired Bitcoin or Ether or some or Litecoin to actually enter into these cryptocurrencies um, or tokens really as they are. But I actually saw one the other day where you can use US dollars. So that barrier to entry is slowly being eroded, but I guess it also comes back to that initial point is we're looking at this as a method of investing, i.e. investing in a platform, investing in a program. But as I think Alex said, is it really a company that we're investing in or just the creation of a piece of software? And if all we want to do is have access to that software and it is a true sort of crowdfunding, not in an equity crowdfunding way, but in a sort of token piece of data piece of music, Pebble Watch kind of way, well, do we really need those same barriers? Because anyone can buy a piece of music, anyone can buy a Pebble Watch, so why shouldn't they necessarily be able to buy a token? I'm saying this kind of play devil's advocate, but again, it comes back to the point of what are people buying? Well, I think there's something more though, because if you, if you buy a Pebble Watch or a piece of music, I don't expect that as this music improves in value, that there's more to come back to me you don't have an expectation of anything else. Whereas I think with anything that looks, looks and smells like an investment scheme, people are going to think they're buying into the promise of, yes, a risk, but if the risk falls on the positive side, that you're going to make, make some money out of it, that you're going to get something positive. Now, if there is nothing happening in the background that actually supports that expectation, 
then what is the representation in the first place? Just thinking about how the human beings respond to the purchase of something, what is the expectation? What do they think they're buying? And does it have a future expectation? And I think, I think that's where it gets very, very messy. You know, I, I agree with that, but then just to play devil's advocate a little bit, I, I'm really interested in this idea of, of secondary markets and the idea that everything, not maybe not everything, but, but many things that we don't really anticipate having a secondary market actually do. I remember when my family was really into Beanie Babies. Do you, did you get the Beanie Baby frenzy uh, where you are? Oh, yes, very much so. I think I've still got boxes of them somewhere in my parents' house. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea is like, you know, so there was the Beanie Baby and the all you're really getting is, you know, this tiny stuffed animal. And while it might be super cute, the, the secondary market was really the catalyst for a lot of those purchases. And so then the question becomes, when we start using things in a different way, the law is very good when we are directed and we're doing things in a very clear and square and, and consistent way, like most of us lawyers like to do things. But then when people get involved, I think you're absolutely right. It starts to get really messy. And when these things cross boundaries and cross borders, I think often regulation isn't in a position to handle that because it's, it's, unfor you know, it's unexpected and unforeseen. So I don't have any answers. I just have more questions. <laughs> um, so my, my point was going to be that, yes, we've got the law, whatever, but it's for a different age. Okay. It's like when the internet came along, if you're going, people are trying, is it applying existing law? And if existing law had applied, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be talking. Okay. We wouldn't have the internet. And there's, there's something new. And what a lot of people worried about is that if, is that the law stifling innovation. And one of the things yeah. um, is that Singapore and Switzerland, allegedly, according to the internet, uh, tokens there are treated as an asset and not a security. And in fact, there's one part in Switzerland which is now being called Crypto Valley. Okay? It's, so, you know, Silicon Valley, Crypto Valley. And so, and now apparently... It's near Zoom, Europe. isn't it? What's that? It's near Zoom. Isn't it yeah, near yeah, exactly. Zoom? And yeah. Europe now is leading the way. And so, yeah. because, you know, and so do we want to be left behind? And I know that it's one of the things that Peter and Matt would say, they're worried about in the States, you know, the was it SEC cutting back and, you know, for the ICO, blockchain capital, you probably know, Arthur, did a big, wanted to do an ICO, couldn't do it in the US, had to go do it in Singapore. And then they could do some into the US, but it was limited to 99 US investors. So it's a US company having to do everything outside and just a little bit there. So I just think it's applying existing framework or thinking to something new is, is quite damaging. It's also an example of this regulatory totally. arbitrage, right? That um, because we're, this is an international market with absolutely no national borders or jurisdictional borders, individuals and groups are forced to actually gravitate toward the jurisdiction that suits them the best. And that might be completely divorced from their physical presence. Yes, absolutely. As someone, as someone who has a number of US clients, um, many of them are making the choice simply to not incorporate and not serve US clients. And the reason is because of the regulatory hurdles 
basically, unlike elsewhere in the world where no one wants to deal with this, in the U.S., everyone wants to claim jurisdiction. And so it's really confusing for startups in this space, and particularly for those that are looking to ICO. You've got the SEC, you've got crowdfunding regulations, and then you've got you know, local, state, and federal laws to deal with. And so from a, from a business risk perspective, it often makes more sense for them to simply incorporate outside of the U.S. and exclude U.S. customers. So I think it's interesting that, um, you know, as I travel around the world, I hear people say, you know, oh, Silicon Valley and, you know, get really excited about San Francisco. And not that I don't love San Francisco as well, but there are this, this sort of regulatory environment in the U.S., I think, is providing a really great opportunity for other places in the world to step up and create frameworks that are less resistant to change and, and certainly more open to this new technology. Drawing on your point about investors is it's not just where you incorporate, it's also who you're offering these things to. And when we're getting into this internet age, as Alex, you were saying, these things can, are put up on the internet and everyone can see them, no matter whether they're in the States, they're in Australia, they're in Antarctica, or provided you have an internet connection in sub-Saharan Africa. So really, what the jurisdiction is not just where you're actually incorporated. It could also mean that you touch upon these other jurisdictions because the people who are buying them are physically somewhere and their laws True. might apply. Yeah, it's just another aspect to think about. And I don't know, again, it's kind of questions rather than answers, but I'm not sure that anyone's really looked into that. Do you know if anyone has? Has looked into, I mean, it's certainly dependent. If you sell a, a, an ICO that the SEC deems a security to a, a U.S. citizen, the SEC is going to claim jurisdiction for sure. Uh, I, I don't think that's a gray area at all. As far mm -hmm. as, you know, other securities laws and how they relate to people and where their physical location is and what happens when people, you know, don't actually have a, a, a standard physical location and what happens when I'm a U.S. citizen, but I'm currently in New Zealand. And if I buy an ICO here, you know, a, a geolocator couldn't, couldn't exclude me from the sale. So then are we necessarily requiring identity to, to be tied in with all these ICOs? And what are the implications of that? And what are the implications of having, you know, startups in this space collecting personally identifiable information from, you know, potential quote unquote investors? Do we need to do that? You know, is it, is, is that something that we should be doing? And, and what are the regulations relating to that? I think it's a big muddy area and no one that I know of has done a has done a comprehensive global research on that issue. I think it's new. I think it's a completely novel question. And you can add another scenario to what you're describing, which is that you, you look at countries like Estonia, which allow you to register as an e-citizen and then set up an incorporated entity in their country. So I am now an e-citizen of Estonia. I have actually registered. It only took me about three days to get approved. And I could now set up a business in Estonia. I could use the Estonian company that I've incorporated as the vehicle to do those purchases for me. Now the geolocator, and this is a really good point because it'll go, no, 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 we know, we know where your computer is, we know where you are, and you're excluded or please note you are bound by Australian law. But what I'm going to be wanting to do is override that and say, no, 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 I just happen to be in Australia. The entity that's actually entering into this transaction is registered in Estonia and according to its regulations, I'm not restricted and I'm not bound by laws other than those of Estonia. 
And I think that's going to become a bigger issue because I think it's, Estonia is not alone in setting this up. There's a couple of other countries that are starting to think about putting their entities and citizens onto, onto blockchains or onto networks into digital form and digitizing their identity. Yeah, and, but for all of this talk, right, no one's moved. You know, there's been no move to prosecute or, or even investigate any of these that, that we've seen in any of these token launches. So that's because of the expense, you know, it's expensive to do that. That's a barrier. And, and so, so looking at this, when do we see actual action taking place? Is this something we can expect to see? We need to tokenize the litigation and have an ICO to fundraise. <laughs> and then we have a collection. That's the way to do it. You get enough people who are annoyed in relation to the one collapse. And that would be the way to proceed. You just got to make sure that that, that that crowdfunding exercise isn't a scam. Because <laughs> <laughs> the first thing your lawyer will say to you is, which jurisdiction are we in? And is the person who we're going to sue, is the person we're going for solvent or bankrupt or you know insolvent or bankrupt, depending on what kind of entity it is? Because if they are insolvent or out of the jurisdiction, most lawyers will say this isn't worth pursuing. So when we're talking about all of this law, it, it becomes kind of academic because a the jurisdictional limitations prevent, you know, just the slipperiness of the of the jurisdictional nature of this is really hard to pin down. And then if something were to really go wrong, we know they would be insolvent, right? Yeah, but to go back Unless to Alex's point, so Alex Alex was saying, you know, as we move forward, we need to think about the way that we can resolve these problems. And Alex's point, I think, is really important that we're a little bit too old fashioned in the way that we regard the law. So what if, for example, and I don't think anybody's done this, but I, this is what, as a lawyer, this is what I would suggest, is that you need the actual crowdfunding technology to include some sort of a smart contract that includes arbitration, relief, remedies for failure to meet whatever your obligations were. You would need to automate it in the same way that you're automating the project itself. I'll just jump in and say um, that I've been advocating for the inclusion of arbitration and really, really robust arbitration clauses in terms and conditions, particularly for ICOs and startups and founder agreements for quite some time now. And I think even if ICOs aren't ready to include a smart contract element, that's something that, that they should absolutely be including as a way to try and uh, circumvent some, at least some of the issues. Certainly, they can't prevent regulatory action, but, um, but I think it's a big deal. And I think it's a, a big add to add arbitration and those other clauses that, that you were referring to. I don't know that anyone's working on actionable smart contracts for that. Does anyone know? No, I, I, I spoke to somebody recently who approached me about a, a PhD exploring arbitration on the blockchain. And I think mm -hmm. the more people who are doing that work, and then sharing their research, the better off we'll all be because we'll start to see the analog uh, principles being codified in a way that automates it without too much human intervention. And I think it can be done, um, but I've only heard it being done in theory. I haven't heard of any actual development mm -hmm. being done. I've spoken to others though, Pamela, who I'm not unique. You're not, not, you're not, you're not unique, but it's great you're advocating for it. And I, I think it's a bit worrying when these ICO, whatever they are, individuals or, or incorporated entities say, well, we're not ready to do that. If they're not ready to take responsibility for the remedial steps that should be taken and how arbitration can work and the resolution of disputes, they're really not ready 
to set up the crowdfunding project. And that's what licensing is all Absolutely. about. You know, and I, I just think they should say, well, if we're not able to, to, to articulate how that would work, we really shouldn't be in this business. We're not grown up enough. It's actually really an interesting point that when the arbitration arbitral clauses have to be set up at the time in which you set up the venture at the time in which you contract. And I have heard people say in the past, oh, but you know, arbitration is great for blockchain disputes. They don't realize that arbitration isn't jurisdiction. There is a difference between the two and you're completely right. As you're setting it up, think about what you want to do. Think about what you're creating. Think about what, unfortunately, where you're going to have to deal with disputes when things or if things go wrong. Yeah. And arbitration, I think, actually is the right way of doing it. On the other side, though, we're probably going to need to upskill the arbitrators because I don't know many who are particularly familiar with the intricacies of blockchain technology or Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies or tokens or ICOs. So we yeah. may need to That's actually true. be helping the legal profession too, so that it's not just us here who are working on it, but the people who are going to be <laughs> adjudicating disputes. I, I do keep a list, and it's always growing, of lawyers who are uh, both qualified and interested in providing arbitration services and also mediation services to this industry. So if any of you want to be on, on the list, let me know uh, off the call, and I'll be happy to add you. I'm sorry, one other valuable resource that you might not be aware of is the American Arbitration Association has a free disputes resolution arbitration clause builder. And of course, they have lots of disclaimers that say, you shouldn't use this if you're not a lawyer and consult with your lawyer. But for people who want to see what a clause might look like, they have 12 different questions and you can go through and just check boxes and it'll actually create a clause that you could use not only for an American arbitration issue, but also they have a, an international rules body and you can select international as well. So I think it's a, it's a kind of a, an arbitration light for those of you who have clients or students who are interested in what could this look like and kind of demystifying what arbitration might look like. I think it's a good way to start. The other thing I think that would be really useful, just trying to think about automating this as much as possible and leaving humans out of it when things do go wrong, would be if the ICO works out what are the top five reasons for a dispute. And I would imagine, just thinking about the way civil litigation works, that if you come up with the top five scenarios that give rise to a dispute, you've probably covered about 90% of all disputes. And then what you could say is, we're going to automate what happens if this dispute arises. And so you will have a little checkbox that you'll tick, and you could say, I agree to the automation of the dispute should it arise according to this smart contract. Certain types of dispute, I don't want to automate it. It'll have to go to a human being. And then what you could do is when it's automated, everybody could ratify the decision of the, the smart contract and just accept it. So for example, with the Bitfinex hack, they came up with that solution of the buy-in. So you don't get a buy-out, you get a buy-in, Everybody now owns equity in Bitfinex, but to a lesser degree, that could be one of the solutions. If, for example, the scenario that gives rise to the dispute is an insolvency scenario or a hack. They're the two most, I think, contentious and dramatic things that give rise to dissatisfaction in consumers with these ventures is hacks and collapse, insolvency. Um, yeah, I think that one important question when you're thinking about dispute resolution and arbitration clauses is that what you're presenting to the buyer of the said token 
like in the case of the DAO hack, isn't necessarily going to be what the code says. So another problem would be figuring out how we can create code that is robust enough to do exactly what the consumer thinks it's going to do and what the developers think it's going to do. Yeah, good point. That's really yeah. good, yeah. I think also what we need to remember is in the sort of black and white scenario, code, first of all, take a step back, code works in black and white. It's ones and zeros. So, but disputes as they arise rarely are, and whilst there may be an insolvency scenario, there'll be other circumstances around that. There are other people that come in, there are different ranking of rights that need to be taken account of. Now, I'm not saying you can't codify it, but I'm saying it'll take a long time to do it. And also you can only code for the, for the known unknowns, not the unknown unknowns, which will always arise. Yeah. And when you're dealing with that, you need to actually have a way of getting on and off the blockchain, on and off the code. So whilst the stock standard response of this person took my coin for some reason, they hacked into my wallet, we need to reverse that, that may be easy to code, but there's an insolvency scenario. What led to that insolvency may um, cause a difference in how you respond to that or how you'd want to respond to that. So we need to be very careful that what we're coding might look simple and easy now, but won't have unintended consequences down the road when this may or may not happen. Oh, absolutely. And I totally I agree with that. And I think there's, there's two important points that we need to consider. And, um, you know, I know enough code to be dangerous, but not enough to actually, I wouldn't call myself a coder. There is no such thing as bug free code. So there will always be some unintended outcome at some point with this code. And, and the flip side of that is remember that every time that we um, ask someone to code in a dispute resolution or some sort of intervention into a smart contract, that's also opening it up to a bad actor using that same door and modifying and, and taking advantage of that door, right? And so it's this balance that I think we'll find in the law as, as we start to actually use smart contracts in a meaningful way. There are going to have to be some contracts that don't actually have quote unquote dispute resolution um, built into them. Maybe that's a feature and maybe that's something that's intended for, for certain uses at least. Can I just make a little point there? And that's that I take some degree of exception to the use of the of to the suggestion that there is no such thing as bug free code, because while today that might be a fair assumption to assume that code can't be watertight, I think is to relegate us to a prior time when we just by our very own experience, we haven't been able to get a lot of the stuff right first time, but I do think that in the future we will get it right, right? You know, two plus two equals four, not five. And that's, that's something, that's a piece of bug, you can write I mean, that in some I, bug-free code. Yeah, but I, I, think that, I think that, yes, if, 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 all, if nothing else is moving, then certainly we can identify bugs today in a static system. But the whole point of, of smart contracts and where we're moving towards using this technology is fluid and full of motion. So, for example, cryptography has a, a approximately a 30-year 30 30 year life if we're looking at it on a good lens, right? So eventually, the cryptography that's in Bitcoin right now, that's in Ether and, and the Ethereum network right now, isn't going to work anymore. And so we're going to need to update those sorts of things, right? So it's, it's not about having code that we know is going to run 
if it were in fact in a static environment, yes, but, but we're not dealing in a static environment. So I think you're right. I mean, I'm not suggesting that like, oh, we just accept that, oh, well, you know, bugs are going to always be, I think it's, it's an eye towards the reality that there will always be bugs, but I don't think that, I hope that I'm not coming across advocating the, well, we just accept the status quo and we don't move forward because I think that the world of smart contracts has a lot of promise. And I think that I, for one, am excited to move in that area. The only other thing I wanted to add when I um, was just finishing off that idea, and now, of course, I'm fighting myself on this brilliant idea I've got about this arbitration on the um, blockchain, is there is a concern also in an insolvency scenario that if there's been, say, insolvent trading, there is legislation that's pretty powerful in a lot of jurisdictions around the world, including Australia and New Zealand, that precludes insolvent trading. So the insolvency, I think the insolvency zone is the one we're talking about. It's pre-insolvency when you know you can't pay your debts as and when they fall due, but there hasn't been an absolute collapse, or you know you're approaching that zone. If you start taking new investors to try and resolve that, looks a bit like a Ponzi scheme. This is really hard to know. With this automation of crowdfunding projects, it's very hard to know when the insolvency zone, when we've entered it. And if we set up any kind of arbitration system that resolves the problem, but is actually just letting somebody get away with having breached the rules that say you can't trade while you're insolvent, then we're all contributing to an illegal contract. So I just thought I'd raise that. Great um, point. Great yeah. point. Um, and then the other one, can I bring in the liability for third parties, which is sort of my little baby? There's a really big problem. I'd love to talk to a lot of developers about this, whether the code itself is an agent. When you set up the crowdfunding project, is, is there an agency relationship that's created with the code? Or do you enter into the relationship with the code and the person who set it up is the agent? And the reason why I ask this is I'm just wondering about fiduciary obligations that are owed in relation to the whatever it is that you take and hold on trust for the investor. These fiduciary relationships, I think everybody's pretty much accepting that they do exist. If there's trust-like property, then what about that breach of trust? Are there third parties who could be liable for their knowing participation in any breaches of these fiduciary duties? I, my, my answer to that is yes, I can see it. It takes a bit of a description of what scenarios I'm talking about, but I just wanted to put it out there for discussion. And I think it's a, a hidden problem for, for all developers um, and also their advisors, their banks, any lawyers who they're relying on and their joint venture or partners. I think that's an interesting point, getting into the fiduciary element of it. And again, it comes back to, well, what is the relationship and what are you promised? Because only in certain circumstances could we even say that there is a fiduciary relationship. And sometimes it's like, well, I wanted someone to come and create a website for me. Do they owe me a fiduciary duty? No. Even if that website has an element of something that I am, that creates a relationship with someone else, does the person who codes it owe that same fiduciary relationship? No, I owe that relationship. So I think we need to actually look at the nature of who's involved, what their role is, and also what is being promised to the people who are actually taking these things and who's promising it. Because whilst when we're looking at this from a fiduciary perspective, there might be, we also need to remember that fiduciary relationships are quite a high bar. And so, as you said, we need to establish that there is kind of trust or agency before we even get there. Yeah, but if you do take somebody's money and you hold it, I know that there are ICOs where the actual wallet 
that contains the token is in the control of the person who's doing the fundraising. The assets and the funds are all being held by the person who's raising the funds. They hold that money, that on trust. Yeah. That that is not an industry best practice, by the way. I just need to put that out there. No, you know, the technology the technology provides alternative measures for that. If you're using yeah. um, Bitcoin, there's multi-sig. If you're using Ethereum, there are multi-sig contracts that you can use. But I, I think it's it's a huge red flag if someone is in the crypto space and holding assets for other people. That's the entire purpose. That's the whole reason we have Bitcoin and Ether and these alternative platforms of trust is so that we don't have to vest trust in third parties. And so, you know, I'm not saying it's always bad, but I'm saying it's bad 99% of the time. So we've covered a whole ton of ground here. Is there anything burning that we've missed out? Well, just perhaps what Arthur was saying, that no one seems to be prosecuted yet. I know the conversation got on to what would investors do, but I actually don't see investors so much. I see the regulators going after it because most people in the space at the moment, the old rulers, well, the rulers, don't invest anything you can't afford to lose. And so, you know, it's I don't see anyone doing that. So it's more the regulators. And the fact that no one that we know of has been prosecuted is very interesting. And the other thing is also, it goes back to the point, you know, the old saying, um, it's better to beg for forgiveness than to seek permission, which seems to be what a lot of people are doing. So, so I don't have anything in particular, but it's just very, very interesting because, I mean, and again, in the early days, people were worried. Is it Liberty Gold? Were they the people that ended up in prison? You know, the people were in prison. Liberty Reserve, yeah. Liberty Reserve, yeah, yeah. So, and, um, you know, and... Yeah, it's just, I don't know, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And the more that happens, the um, sort of safer it is, because the more there are, the less, you can't suddenly roll it all back, because a lot of people have money invested, they won't want to lose it. And actually, we've seen this played out, because Australia is far more advanced um, down cryptocurrency and regulation of blockchain than in New Zealand. And one of the reasons I think that is, is was it Senate inquiry that was done in 2014? You actually had a proper Senate inquiry on they called it virtual currencies, I think. And there was a lot of pushback because there was so much money already invested. And so once you've got people and money, it creates its own sort of momentum. So the more people that can do it, the harder it is to unwind, if that makes sense. Very good point. Yeah. Just sort of one point relating to um, prosecution and what you were saying, Alex. And I think something that we should probably cover in another one of these discussions is... Um, it's one thing to, you know, rely on existing laws like the Howey test or to use them to base a new framework off. But we also have to look at whether these things can actually be enforced by central authorities at all, or in which cases the architecture of the technology prevents anyone from being liable in a practical sense rather than a theoretical sense. Well, I think they could have, if they really wanted to, just ask in the States, the US, you will end up in prison <laughs> unless you never want to go through there again, you know? So look at Kim.com, right? <laughs> I mean, he did, he's done nothing. He's not broken any New Zealand laws and you know, he's not been found guilty of anything. And yet he's on the verge of, he hasn't been de deported, but he's been destroyed as a man. Mm. But that takes sort of identifying first who the, the parties are that we want to prosecute or what have you. But there's some degree of anonymity in a lot of these systems that, potentially could 
well, as it already is, get around a lot of uh, a lot of the laws and the enforcement of the laws. Yeah, and I just want to add two other things to that. I think that one of the problems with the regulator bringing the prosecution is, of course, you've got the higher standard, you've got the higher burden of proof. They've got to prove beyond reasonable doubt certain things in relation to the conduct of the the um, defendant or the accused. And then the other problem is you need the information provided by the, the victims. And the, I think there's issues with where are the victims? Are they all over the world? Are they underage? Were they avoiding tax? Were there certain regulations that they think maybe they were trying to get around and so they're reluctant to come forward or can't come forward? They may be vulnerable in some way. I think that I think marrying up all the forces to get those sorts of cases before the courts are actually going to be problematic. Doesn't mean it won't happen, but I just wanted to, to suggest that there are complexities. But what? But over time, the thing is, until there'll be enough of a momentum of people doing best practice, you know, to actually then to regulators, because most regulators, um, and this is actually a point from the last conversation about how is what's happening in New Zealand, and again. Um, Arthur can testify to this. At the blockchain conference last week in Auckland, there were an awful lot of people from different government departments. So um, Ministry of Primary Industries, the, our Inland Revenue Department, our MB, which is uh, Ministry of Business and Innovation, and others are stats, for example, because they're trying to get their head around it. So if you go to them and just say, look, maybe it's naive, but we've got this, it's, it's working, you know, and then you can do it. And especially that thing about having the arbitration and having, you know, there's also that thing of the, the answer to the machine is in the machine. You know, that's the type of thing as well. Yeah, I totally agree. And I agree. And 90% of people want to do the right thing, want to do everything above board. Maybe it's 99%. It's definitely the majority. Mm. And so I agree with you. If you can get, get it signed off with a little bit of good conduct and certify what that is. I'm on the um, technical committee for Standards Australia and you know we're heading up the blockchain, people engaging with regulators and on an international level asking ourselves, I mean obviously I'm nowhere near up to speed on this as a technologist, but just having even lawyers in the background who are listening to the process and trying to contribute to what that, how that should work. It's really important to do that so that there can be some confidence built into the way that we're all going to move forward. And then that will get what you're describing there, Alex, that momentum that's so important, but in, in a way that's above board and, and transparent. This is the Ether Review. I'm going to include the snippet of the DevCon 2 interview in which Peter van Valkenburg explains the Howie test so succinctly right here. I hope you guys enjoy. Thanks for joining me, Peter Van Valkenburg. I'm Peter Van Valkenburg. I'm Director of Research at Coin Center, which is a Washington DC-based nonprofit research and advocacy center. And we focus on the public policy issues that are generated through the availability of these new technologies. There are a lot of legal questions that come up because of the availability of these networks, because they allow people to do things that they weren't able to do before, or they were only able to do before through a regulated entity and now they can do them peer-to-peer. -peer. So lots of questions come up here as to what, is, what can be enforced, what should be enforced, uh, what does the existing law say, how does the existing law actually apply to people using the technology. You gave a speech about case law examples of how securities have been uh, identified and regulated in the past. Exactly. Yeah. So let's look at specifically the DAO. The two questions, first of all, is we're kind of looking for a bit of a blow-by-blow blow of what happened from your perspective as someone who's watching it with regulatory concerns, I'm sure. And then also, 
the nature of the friction between the emergence of these new technologies and existing legislation? Sure. So it might be easier to start with securities law and then talk about the DAO than start with the DAO and talk about securities law. The primary consideration here is likely going to be US securities law as a, as a first pass. And the reason for that are some eccentricities, basically, in the way American securities law evolved as compared with other common law jurisdictions, other British jurisdictions, or former British jurisdictions, and with continental law and, and, and other law. The thing about American securities law is that the Securities Act has this laundry list of things that are securities. And one of the things in there is investment contract. Investment contract is not in turn defined in any other section of the Securities Act. And investment contract doesn't actually have like a plain language interpretation. I, I don't know what it is. What is it? Like, I don't know. My friend's got this great deal on this thing. You should want, you want in. You know, that's an investment contract, I guess. But that's not good enough to determine when something is or is not, you know, eligible to be regulated in such a heavy duty fashion as securities regulation, regulation is and maybe should be. So. Because the statute's vague, the SEC has historically, and this goes all the way back to the mid-20th century, basically, deferred to the federal courts in order to come up with some sort of flexible test for determining when something is and is not an investment contract. And the big case, the supernode in this net of legal reasoning, is the Howey case. And the Howey case, it deals with an orange grove. And it's one-to-one -one with some of the new proposals of how to enforce securities law against, say, app coins. So Howie has an orange grove. It's got many acres. He invites uh, rich New Englanders down to visit Florida and the orange grove and you know, stay at the hotel he's got next to it. And he'll take them on tours of the grove and he'll say, uh, you see the plants, the trees, the sun, and they're happy and they're having fun. And they say, it's so beautiful here. Let's move here. <laughs> and he'll say something like, oh, well, it's funny you should say that. The orange grove is for sale, but you don't buy the whole thing. I'll sell you one acre of the many acres that I have. And what he was doing was basically partitioning his many acre orange grove into one acre plots. You'd get a deed. And then you'd also be kind of pressured to sign a contract. And in that contract, it would say something like, you bought this property. You need somebody to take care of the trees the soil, to pick the plants, to sell them at market, and to give you the profits from your land. So just hire us as you know, farmers. So that was the deal. And he sold a bunch of these plots with these attendant maintenance contracts. Uh, it turns out that the Orange Grove is not profitable. There's a lawsuit, inevitably, against Howie from some of these New Englanders. Maybe they weren't all from New England. I'm just generalizing, stereotyping. I like New Englanders. So the lawsuit makes its way up to the Supreme Court. It's not small potatoes. The Supreme Court uses this lawsuit as an opportunity, basically, to set the test for what is and is not a security. And that test has four prongs. It is, was there an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profits dependent on the efforts of a third party promoter or manager? And the test also says some things like, formalities don't matter here. So the fact that there was no, this is your share of stock in the Howie Orange Grove. This is your equity. All you had was a deed, ownership of physical property, and an attendant maintenance contract. Really sounds like you did a real estate deal, which isn't a security. And then you, you know, hired someone to farm your land, which is not a security either. But 
under that four-pronged test, what the Supreme Court said is that the combination of those two things and the circumstances of the whole uh, enterprise, that makes a security. Even though it's not shares of stock or something enumerated specifically in the statute, that's a security. So fast forward to 2015. Josh Garza creates a fork of peer coin, which he names Paycoin. And Paycoin is ostensibly an open source cryptocurrency. It's, there's a GitHub repository. And it's got some weirdness. It's a proof of stake cryptocurrency that involves uh, a couple nodes being super nodes earning supernatural returns, which is already sketchy, because <laughs> guess who owns those nodes? It's Josh Garza. Um, Josh Garza also has a history of being a scammer. Before Paycoin, he did cloud mining operations. He did geniuses at work. And that was basically, you know, give me money and you'll own one of the mining rigs in our warehouse and you'll get the profits of that. By the way, on securities regulation, that is exactly the same as saying, give me money and you'll own these orange trees and I'll give you the profits from them. It's like one to one, which is awesome. It's just awesome from a, from a like how nothing ever freaking changes. <laughs> whether it's an orange grove in Florida or a warehouse full of hash, hash slits, I think he called them. Turns out it didn't even matter whether that is a security, that cloud mining operation, because he didn't even have the hash slits. The warehouse was empty, and he was just taking money from new investors and paying old investors with it. Classic Ponzi, well within the established jurisdiction of the SEC or any other securities regulator as far as enforcing the law to prevent financial scams. So he's the serial scammer. The SEC is already looking at him in 2015 for the cloud hashing, the cloud mining operation. But as I said, he's launched Paycoin, which is ostensibly an open source cryptocurrency. He does all sorts of silly things like promise that Amazon is you know, in talks with him to accept Paycoin as their digital currency, uh, that there's going to be a repurchase agreement potentially in the future where if you wanted to sell your Paycoin that you buy now back to Paycoin Incorporated, they'll buy it back for $20. It'll never go below that price. Therefore, it's basically a guarantee. Everything that has been promised by other things, but you know, there's at least some legitimacy behind the hope in that promise in those other cases. Uh, they do a crowd sale. They bring in a fair amount of money. I can't remember the specific figure, all mostly in Bitcoin. They liquidate their Bitcoin. They've profited, walk away from the project effectively. Everybody realizes that there's going to be no development here, that this thing is not going to have Amazon integration or a minimum $20 price floor. Price plummets, classic pump and dump, and all of these investors are left holding the bag. These investors maybe should have known better, but that's what you could say about people who bought these orange trees in Florida. So in this case, what we're talking about is sale of a physical asset, a Paycoin. It's not a physical, tangible asset, but it's as much of a physical, tangible asset as, say, a Bitcoin. And as we come to understand these technologies, we're going to have to treat them as physical assets, as tangible things, because they have to mean something. And they really do mean something if they have economic value and you can transfer them and hold them privately or give them to other people. So sale of a physical asset, Paycoins, and yet maybe it's a security. And why is that? Because under the Howey test, you have an investment of money. People bought these pay coins in a crowd sale with an expectation of profits. Everyone thinks, oh, it's going to be integrated with Amazon. It's going to have a minimum $20 price floor. And I'm buying it for the low, low price of 5 bucks now or $1 now. It was like super cheap. <laughs> super good deal. So you have investment of money, expectation of profits. 
common enterprise. It's really just Josh Garza and his developers working on this thing. This is not a wide uh, decentralized community of people like you see in Bitcoin or as you see in Ethereum. This is really just a couple people in a dark room somewhere forking PureCoin. And you're really relying on them to get that promised Amazon integration. And that final prong is expectation of profits reliant on the efforts of a third party promoter. It's Josh Garza, like I said. Fits the Howey test even though what we're talking about is selling nominal interest in cryptocurrency. So therefore, are all cryptocurrencies securities? Big hanging question in 2015, still a hanging question now, but we've worked at Coin Center to develop a framework that helps answer that question, hopefully. Ultimately, that question will only ever be answered by a federal judge, not even necessarily by the SEC. The SEC could bring an enforcement action against any particular cryptocurrency seller, and then if they chose to not settle, if they decided to go to court and fight that, it would come down to a federal judge to apply the Howey test and decide whether that cryptocurrency is a security. That case could broadly apply to all cryptocurrencies or it could narrowly apply to the specific facts of this particular case, depending on how the opinion of the judge was written, basically. So recognizing that this is a looming issue, and again, a looming issue specifically for US securities law because in other jurisdictions, there's no flexible test. It's just a statute or a regulation with enumerated categories. There's a difference, actually, and that's why the US laws are really the ones to worry about. Also, they apply overseas. If you have US investors, even if you're a Austrian-based company, you're going to potentially be subject to US regulations, and if that country has extradition, which most friendly countries do, they could get a hold of you. So we have this looming threat and this hanging legal question what we wanted to do in around this time last year in the summer of 2015 was uh, present a framework to the SEC that we felt would be helpful for them in first understanding how these technologies work, why sometimes they do exhibit the qualities of a common enterprise. It was a small group of people developing this thing and promising these integrations. But sometimes it's actually much more decentralized. It's more like the gold industry. So if I was to buy a bar of gold bullion, I have a nominal interest in some property. Is that part of a common enterprise, though? Well, if you take a really metaphysical viewpoint of it, yes. People digging it out of the ground and people finding uses for it, whether it's jewelry or whether it's uh, industrial uses, together create the value of gold. It's a common enterprise. But not the kind of common enterprise that we regulate as an issuer of securities. And why is that? Well, any number of features, it would be ridiculous. Everything would be regulated as a security that way. So, what you can see here is that you potentially have common enterprise if it's a small group of people, but potentially don't, I believe, if it's a big decentralized group of people. And then there are other aspects of the actual case law that built on the Howey test that are also relevant when you look at different variables within the technology and the community that developed the cryptocurrency. And so we had to create a framework that first explains all these attributes about different ways of using the technology and different ways about building the community that maintains the thing. So the way Bitcoin does it, the way Ethereum does it, the way Paycoin did it. And once you can explain those items, then you can map them to the Howey test. Say, this amount of decentralization in mining and in software development makes it look like we don't have a common enterprise. The fact that the code is open source here makes it look like we don't have a common enterprise because there's so many people contributing code to it and they're all doing it in an unaffiliated way. Contrast that with Paycoin, where 
the code was sort of open source, but there were only maybe two or three people working on it, maybe even just, just Josh Garza. Contrast Paycoin when it comes to was there distributed mining? Not really. They were Paycoin stakers, and as I said, some of them earned supernatural returns, and those are, of course, going to be the people in charge. So you have a lot of indicia of there being basically a good old-fashioned corporation here or going concern that is selling its assets as basically equity stake. But contrast that with, say, Ethereum or Bitcoin. You have a distributed network of people who are loosely collaborating but not really a going concern. And there's just a physical asset that this network produces, just like the network of gold miners and gold industry users and jewelers create a physical asset that has value called gold. So it's a lot to stick into a framework. And there are, as I said, other cases that built on the Howey case that are important here. So aside from figuring out that common enterprise prong, there's some other things that are not securities uh, in the real world. Uh, a big one is condominiums. So in New York, for example, there's a lot of housing co-ops. You don't really buy an apartment. You buy a share in the housing corporation that maintains a building. There are cases where someone tried to sue the co-op board, and as a former New York resident, I completely understand the joy of suing a co-op board, or I imagine what it would be. I'm not gonna do that. I'll never get an apartment in New York again, oh God. <laughs> Cut that out, no. Um, but what was found in these cases where um, a tenant, for example, sued the co-op board for securities fraud is that the courts roundly said, no, I'm sorry, that that can't be a security. And why is that? Uh, it's because this is something that has a use value. People buy a share of a housing co-op in order to live in it. Maybe they also buy it to rent it out and make money off the rental income. It's and make it's got that value. It's got a fundamental value that is utilitarian. To the person who purchased it. Purchased it. Wouldn't gold off it? Yeah. And gold also actually has a fundamental utilitarian value. Right. Contrast that with a share of Apple stock or a bond, or a bond yeah. you really don't have a utilitarian value here other than that you've helped finance someone else's common enterprise, which is a security. Right. Right. Or a Dow token. Or a Dow token. Yeah, so you fast forwarded me. I'm sorry I've laid this out. I probably no, shouldn't invoke the specter of Richard Epstein because now this is, a, this, is a, <laughs> this is an S rate. So um, utilitarian, underlying utilitarian value, we're not going to call that a security, at least in the case of condominiums. Um, another case, another body of cases deals with country clubs and golf courses. So these people, these organizations, they sell memberships, you know, sometimes. Apparently Augusta, you can't even buy a membership. You have to like know somebody who knows somebody and do an initiation ritual or something, you know, wade in the water hazard of the 18th hole. I have no idea. In a tux probably. Um, but anyway, they sell memberships. Memberships sometimes are transferable, so they're almost like a token, basically, that gives you access to a thing. There are some cases where golf course memberships were found to be securities, even though there is a utilitarian value there. Playing golf, it's not really utilitarian, but it's a value. Why? The, the answer is the cases where a golf course membership, sale of it, was found to be the issuance of a security, are all cases where the golf course hadn't been built yet. So the developers who are planning you know, the links and planning the, the country club and the swimming pool, They've got all these promotional materials, like, look, at, look how beautiful it's going to be. You know, you know, you know, feel rich. It's going to be awesome. Buy in at the low, low price now. We'll use the money to build it, and then you'll be you know, golden. Those were speculative. So what you get from these two things is, in the context of tokens, 
on decentralized networks. Utilitarian value, less like a security. Purely financial speculative value, more like a security. Sold before the platform was up and running, i.e. pre-sale for a future application, more like a security. Sold once the application is up and running, less like a security. And those are the big parts of our framework that are relevant to, say, the Ethereum community. Because it, Ethereum is a platform for decentralized computing that makes it very easy to issue these tokens, whether they are app tokens, really just a way to get a utilitarian value out of something, like be remunerated for providing storage on a network or something like that, uh, but could also, in theory, be purely speculative. And so to get to the DAO, you know, as I said, the only way to ever authoritatively say that something is or is not a security is to be a federal judge. So I'm not going to say with authority that the DAO is a security, but we can follow the test, the same test that a judge would apply. Investment of money. People sent money to this contract that was written and maintained by people effectively and advertised by people. Investment of money. Common enterprise. This is where we have to ask ourselves, how decentralized was the group of people who advertised it and got people to invest in it? Not particularly decentralized. There's other factors here, though, like DAO token holders themselves were in some control. Ideally, if the thing had worked the way it was supposed to work, it would be only the members who would vote on its use. Didn't work that way, but ideally it would have been that way. So in a certain sense, there isn't a promoter who has a lot of control as a common enterprise, although maybe all of the people together are a common enterprise. That's weird, though, where all of the investors are the common enterprise. That's more like a member-managed uh, LLC, basically. And I believe, although I hesitate to say this with authority on camera, that there's some pretty good case law that warrants looking into that member-managed LLCs, for example, are not securities. Anyway. Investment of money, common enterprise, we're looking good for the DAO being a security at those two prongs. Expectation of profits, that one's easy. The damn website, the DAO is, and then it would like, like new words would shuffle through, profitable. I think people expect it to profit. Dependent on the efforts of a third party or promoter. We were basically depending on the sanctity of that code in a very real way and we were depending on the sanctity of that code to do what it was advertised to do by promoters. The DAO fits so pretty what, well. So what was the DAO advertised to do? I mean, we, all we have is metaphors, right? But a good metaphor, I think, would be a wholly you know, member-owned, all-general partners venture capital fund. So the difference between a limited partner and a general partner in a venture fund is that the limited partners just give capital, and they rely on the general partners to figure out profitable places to put that capital. In the DAO, all of the investing members get to vote as to where the capital should go. They're all general partners. People put money in. They pool Ether. They get DAO tokens, which afford them voting rights. If all things work correctly, regularly proposals are made to the DAO, off-chain, presumably, but with a payment address that is on, on Ethereum. And the members can vote with their DAO tokens to fund one proposal or another. And if a majority of members vote, I think it was a simple majority of the members vote for a particular proposal with a particular amount of Ether from the common fund going to that proposal, then that will happen in the smart contract. So you have 
pooled assets that aren't owned by anyone or, or custodied by anyone. They're really just hanging in limbo according to the cryptography and economic incentives inherent in any decentralized computing platform and a mechanism for investors to vote on where those funds go. And then there's this added escape valve feature called uh, split contract. The purpose of the split contract was to protect minority shareholders, basically, is what you'd say the, the, le the legal metaphor is. People who would be victimized because they'd never be part of the winning group over 50%, especially in circumstances where the group over 50% could be just a few people because you've got a couple of giant investors who've amassed a lot of DAO tokens. Then those giant investors could vote to send everybody's money to themselves with no chance of future profits or returns, and the 49% would be screwed. So the split contract was an escape valve for that 49%, right? And what they'd say is, you can call a special election, basically, or a special call to the, to the DAO contract, where you say, I want to get out with my share of the Ether I put in according to my DAO token distribution. And there's some sort of waiting escrow period where any proposal needs to be negotiated or discussed before a vote can happen. The split period for discussion is shorter deliberately than the proposal for a big vote, so that if you see a big incoming vote that wants to send all the money to a scam, you have time to launch a split vote before that big vote comes. So the DAO hack um, is a situation where somebody called the split function, saying, I want to leave, but found a, a re-entrancy bug in the code that allowed the split function to basically be called repeatedly, and every time that split function is called, that person's amount of DAO tokens that are supposed to leave, leaves again and again and again and again. So you can siphon off more ether from the common DAO fund than you ever put in. A disaster considering how it was advertised and generally understood to be supposed to function. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info, or follow us on Twitter at etherreview. I'm Arthur Falls.